0: It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 19. This is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Nick Olson from Prairie Drifter Farm in Litchfield, Minnesota, out on the edge of the prairie. Nick and his wife, Joan, raise about six acres of vegetables, 90 minutes west of the Twin Cities, selling most of them through a CSA and the rest to stores and restaurants. Nick has also coordinated the Farm Beginnings courses for the Land Stewardship Project for a number of years. We talked about his experience with that program influenced the decisions that he and Joan have made on their farm over the past six years, covering topics from holistic management to relationship management. I had a lot of fun talking to Nick and I learned a lot. I think you'll find the conversation as valuable as I did. Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Osborne Seed Company, founded by seed professionals and dedicated to serving professional growers of all scales. Osborne Seed provides quality seeds, excellent customer service and a fantastic selection. OsborneSeed.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. No matter your level of experience, Fertrell has the products and knowledge to help you grow healthy, natural plants and animals. Fertrell.com. Welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast, Nick.
1: Thanks, Chris. I'm I'm excited this this is this is a this is an honor for me. So thanks for having me on.
0: Oh well, thanks, Nick. I'm so glad that you could join us because we record these podcasts at all kinds of times of the day and the night. The last one I did at six o'clock on a Sunday morning, and this one I'm doing at uh, at at eight fifteen on a Friday night because you were just putting your kids down to bed. Uh, and so this is you know it's kind of the the life of a farmer. <laughs>
1: That's right. It's the kids out of bed, and Friday night, as you know, means nothing. As a farmer, during this time of the year.
0: (laughs) And you don't even have farmer's market to go to tomorrow, so it it really does mean nothing except that you're going to get up and probably do some hoeing tomorrow.
1: That's right. Um, Yeah, there is some cultivating and some field work to be done tomorrow, for sure.
0: So tell us a little bit about Prairie Drifter Farm to get us started here.
1: Yeah, so my wife, Joan, and I own and operate Prairie Drifter Farm, and we actually started... Our farm business back in 2010 was our first season. Um, And like many beginning farmers, we actually rented land that first year. So we had some friends with some organic land and they rented us um, just an acre back then. So actually our first year, I remember we had an acre of ground at a friend's house. We had a quarter acre of potatoes at a farm a mile down the street. And we had all of our garlic in a community garden plot in town. So we were spread out over three places. Um, and then that fall we ended up um, purchasing a farm. Um, so we had our first season of Prairie Drifter Farm in 2011 at our current location, which is in Litchfield, Minnesota, approximately 65 miles straight West of Minneapolis, St. Paul. Um, and, We intentionally grew our farm um, quite slowly. Um, It was always our intention to be very deliberate about our growth, um, keep it slow. Um, We started a family at the same time we started a farm. Uh, David Van Eckout from Hogsback Farm, actually, when I told him that we had just bought a farm, we were pregnant and we were moving. He said, Hallmark makes a sympathy card for that. Um, <laughs> and now that I look back at it, he's probably right. Or if they didn't, they should, because um, it was a lot of a lot of stuff to be juggling right away. Um, but we started our farm here um, with about, I believe, 25 CSA share members and two small wholesale accounts. And just slowly over the past four years have, have grown that business to the point now where Joan and I are both farming full-time on the farm. I'm still working off-farm a bit in the wintertime, but um, during the season, um, we're both full-time on the farm, which is very exciting, and added two kids into the mix during the time as well. Yeah. So, um, like I said, our growth was very slow and deliberate, and we did that because I had off-farm income, and the plan was to take that off-farm income and have that float the family and take all the money that we made from the farm and plug it right back into the farm itself. So I don't think we, our first three years of farming, we didn't draw any income from the farm. We just took all that money and put it back into the farm with the hope that when we transitioned to both of us farming full time, that for the most part, there's always things to buy, but for the most part, the farm would be capitalized enough that the money we then generated could go um, to us as as a farmer's salary. Um, So this year we were able to do that. Um, I believe our second year we did about 45 shares, 65, 100. And this year we're doing 125 shares. And those are full share equivalent. So we do a full share and a half share. And our full share is actually um, a three-quarter bushel box every week for 18 weeks. And our half share is that same size box, but it's just every other week. Um, And that's been... When we managed a farm before we even started Prairie Drifter Farm, we were doing the two size boxes. So full share was one and one ninth. Half share was five ninths. Everybody got a box every week for 18 weeks, and that was that was a bit of a challenge for us as farmers to, to figure out what went into what box and what didn't. Um, so this this way has been really, really nice. And we found that our share members really liked the option of just getting a box every other week. Um,
0: so so you're, you and Joan managed a farm before you started Prairie Drifter?
1: That's right. We, um, so we both did internships back in 2006. Um, Joan was at Easy Bean Farm over in Milan with Mike Jacobs and Melena Jacobs. And
0: Yeah, that's just about thirty miles away from you guys, right?
1: It was at the time. Now now, okay. now we moved further east. So now that's about um I think Easy Beans a little over an hour from us now. Um to the west. And then I actually worked at a small CSA farm, one of the first CSA farms in Minnesota that I went to learn, and that was um Earthrise Farm run by two nuns who happen to be Carmen Fernhold's biological sisters. For folks who know Carmen as a Organic pioneer, especially in the big small grains and row crop, um, and that farm was more based on education and internships. And we did our thirty-five member CSA and two farmers markets. Um, so we did a, uh, both did internships in two thousand six, but then in two thousand eight, we actually went back to Earthrise Farm and we managed their CSA and their internship program for two years um, before starting Prairie Drifter Farm.
0: And all of this was while you were working for Land Stewardship Project's Farm Beginnings Program, right?
1: That's correct. I. We shouldn't say all of it. I actually started working with LSP halfway through our first season managing Earthrise Farm. So I started with LSP in September of 2008. Um, and I was on staff as a Farm Beginnings Program um Organizer, but my primary role was to facilitate the Farm Beginnings program um, in the the West Central region of Minnesota.
0: So tell us tell us a little bit about the Farm Beginnings program. Uh, I think I you know if you're if you're a beginning farmer in in Minnesota or Iowa or kind of that Wisconsin Illinois state line area, you probably know a lot about the Farm Beginnings program, but. If you're not, I, I, I don't know how familiar people in the other parts of the country would be, but it's a, a really interesting setup.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great program and I, I I credit a lot of Joan and my success, if we can call it success, at least success as a beginning farmers, to being connected with the the Farm Beginnings program and the and the, the network, the farmer network within uh land stewardship project. And farm beginnings started ooh, I think probably about nineteen years ago now, down in southeastern Minnesota. Um, and it actually started with a lot of, a lot of dairy farmers, and there were um, grass-based dairy farmers looking for alternative options to, to educate their sons and daughters about um, sustainable farming and giving them a chance to get back onto the farm. By the time that I got on staff with Farm Beginnings, about seven years ago, that, that shifted a lot, and there was a pretty wide variety of folks um, coming to Farm Beginnings. Um, from all all walks of life and all backgrounds but essentially it's a, it's a beginning farmer training program um, it's for folks who have some farm experience and it's for folks who want to start a farm business um one thing um, that we found very quickly is there was a, a fair amount of folks who were able to plug into other programs to learn how to farm for themselves, to, to be subsistence farmers, to, to take classes from the U or from extension on small farms. But to really put that emphasis on starting a farm business is where Farm Beginnings really excels. Um, and it's the, the two parts of Farm Beginnings that really ring true and I think are really important is that it's farmer-led. So we have farmers come in to the, the class to teach the beginning farmers about um, different topics within within starting a farm business. And then it's community-based. So we're doing these in, in communities in which we're building networks of support for folks. Um, Land stewardship project started Farm Beginnings, but since then it has branched out and it's become a, um, there's a Farm Beginnings collaborative, which includes nine organizations across the country, um, Maine being the furthest away. And then there's a, a fair amount of them um, here within the, within the Midwest, um, but each of those programs and each of those organizations offers uh, a slight variation on, on farmer training based on the region in which they're at. Through that collaboration with other organizations, um, Land Stewardship Project worked very closely with MOSCA out in Maine. And MOSCA, The Maine
0: Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. Thank you. Yes.
1: MOFCA MOSCA did not have a Farm Beginnings program, but they had a really intense what they called a journey person program. So it was folks apprenticing on farms kind of far along in trying to get their farm started and had some very specific components about um, business planning and LSP. So MOFCA adopted Farm Beginnings. And LSP has since adopted the JourneyPerson program, and now we are able to offer Farm Beginnings graduates an additional training program after they've gotten two to five years into their business. And that includes more um, financial planning, more communications training within farm partners, and a match savings component so folks can set aside money for two years and have that match dollar for dollar that can then go to a capital purchase for their farm that's wealth generating.
0: So I'm really interested in, in the second thing that you said, communication strategies. and But then you, you said between farm partners.
1: Yeah. So what we found, and this, this has been interesting too, but I would say the majority, I would say at least 75% of the people who come to Farm Beginnings and our Journey Person Program are in a farm partnership. So whether that's a significant other, whether that's a sibling, or whether that's a close friend of theirs, um, it tends to be, at least what we've been seeing, um, folks coming in with, with, with a farm partner. Um, I would say the majority of those farm partners end up being a significant other two of, of the two, but we found that in years two to five, you know, one years, one and two, you work really hard and it's great. And everybody, everybody's excited, but you know, as folks really try to pencil things out and meet some of their financial goals, we found that in years two to five, um, beginning farmers struggle a lot, um, both financially, both with time management, but also with that relationship piece of just communication, um, really trying to figure out who's, in, who's taking the lead in one area and not the other, and just making sure that there's the right balance there. And we found, based on conversations we've had with beginning farmers, that that's a real critical piece um, to making the farm flow. So we've been very intentional about working with our um, program participants to, to really kind of try to get some systems in place so that they have really good communication amongst themselves Again, all with the ultimate goal of leading to success on their farms.
0: So let's let's talk about that a little bit. I know this wasn't what we what we laid out in our in our pre show chat, but this is I think this is a really interesting uh conversation because it's something when I when I was in charge of the presentations at the Moses organic farming conference. It was something we were asked to address again and again, but it's a very difficult <coughs> topic to get at in a 90 minute workshop. And so I'm, I'm really interested in, in maybe how you and Joan have, have used what you learned through the journey person program, both as somebody who was uh, administering it as well as, as somebody who uh I assume went through it, That's right. that you guys are obviously put some structures. That I would assume you, if you teach the stuff, you're kind of required <laughs> to do this stuff. I assume you guys put some structures in place it, that that is that are hopefully helping to contribute to your success as you are now coming out of the other side of that two to five year period in your six year of farming. But your six year of farming with two small kids on a relatively small farm in a relatively rural area. You're right.
1: So there's I mean you've already stacked up a few challenges there. Um and also some of the I think I think some of the benefits that we have going for us as well. Um Joan and I always say, you know, farming is hard, but you know, parenting two small children is even harder. Um and we have really good kids. Uh so you know, some of the things that were really crucial to us, and this came through some very pointed um discussions that we had um, through the Journeyperson course. And one thing I'll say about it is you're right. It's really hard to do it in a 90 minute workshop, especially if it's a 90 minute workshop with hundred people in the room. Um, so one thing unique about what we did within the Journeyperson person course is we had this cohort of 20 people. Most of us were couples. So, you know, um, 15, 15 farms represented, but we were able to take some really specific time to sit down, go through some exercises, but then have the time to, to then sit down one-on-one and pencil those out. And we had retreat time in conjunction with that to go back and reflect upon that. Um, but Joan and I have been very intentional back on the farm. And I'll be honest, it gets hard this time of year when when you're running, you know, you're running full board. Um, every daylight hour is taken up with, with farming and, and, and even some of the nighttime hours. But we've been very intentional about, um, number one, really trying to to Divvy up tasks on the farm, major tasks. So, you know, taking those categories of things that need to get done on the farm and then putting a point person there. And that doesn't mean that I have to do all of that or Joan has to do all of that, but it's my responsibility or her responsibility to make sure those things get done. So, whether that's delegating an employee to do it or asking Joan to help me out with it, but it's putting that ball in my court to make sure that that gets done. And that goes all the way down to who's going to cook dinner tonight. Um, And that was big for us too, because we would kind of put that off until we were all hungry and the kids were hungry. And then, you know, that made it a challenge to figure out, but you know, we sit down at the beginning of the week and say, all right, you know, I'm going to do dinner Monday Wednesday, Friday, you're on Tuesday, Thursday, we'll figure it out on the weekends. And all of those things have just really helped us to lower some of the stress, and make some of the, the the home and farm systems run a little smoother. And it's not without fault, you know. It, it's not perfect, but it, it definitely has helped a lot.
0: Yeah, nothing nothing's without fault. No, no, you gotta you got you gotta try. That's, you know,
1: that's right. Um, one, I just want to add one other thing. One thing that we learned also through going through some of this is we also were able to flush out the way each of us like information delivered to us. And it's different for both of us. You know, the way that I want information to come to me is different the way than the way Joan wants it to come to her. But by well, adults,
0: give me an example give me an example of that. You know,
1: I I'm trying to think of a, a specific example, but I I, I would much rather um, sit down if if there's something that needs to be talked about that, you know, maybe there's a, a major purchase or there's, you know, kind of a snafu on the farm. I would rather sit down um, when we have a little time and run through some options. I like to talk things out for a while. Um, so if it's something in my court, we'll, we'll maybe do a little bit of that. Um, Joan tends to um, do things a little more fast paced and wants to take care of some of those things, you know, right when they're happening. So if it's something in her court, I want to honor that and try to make those things kind of click through that way. And that's just been helpful just so we know how to, you know, how to approach one another. If something comes up that we weren't expecting or even if it's something we are expecting, just how to best approach that person to to get the result that we all want
0: that's really i think that's really interesting that that you guys have you've you've agreed on different communication patterns depending on whose area of responsibility is the communication needs to happen about i like that
1: right right and again you know we're working on it but it it's definitely you know um helped us out about you know just like it's you know you know stuff comes up and just to be able to to work through that with a little bit of a plan ahead of time um and then lastly we 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 were able to go through, through some pretty good decision making process. So I I feel like one thing we do well as a farm partnership is we make we make pretty good decisions based on experience in making decisions but then also just having some criteria in place for how we, how we judge a, a decision and, and how we go forward making, especially the bigger decisions. You know, smaller decisions can be made a little more on the fly, but some of the bigger decisions that we're forced to make, um, I feel like we have some systems in place and some considerations that we make for all of those um, uh, larger decisions.
0: When I was involved in the Farm Beginnings program there was a lot of emphasis placed on the holistic management That's model. Right. Um in fact I think it might have even been long enough ago that it was still called holistic resource management right model. Yep. But but the is, is that what you guys are following or have you have you taken that and and made some some twists and changes to to meet your own specific needs and your own specific decision making styles?
1: Good question, you know holistic management when I first came on to farm beginnings was 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 big um, and I really struggled with it um, and I think part of the reason I struggled with it, it was was because um, no one was able to to articulate it to me in a way that made sense. Um, and a lot of the, at least in that time, a lot of the examples that were coming out of holistic management were, were based on livestock farms. And I, I don't want to say that there's no carryover between a livestock farm and a vegetable farm, but there was enough, there was enough um, pieces that didn't quite fit that it was really hard to make some of those connections. Um, so Joan and I um, kind of... Came up with a hybrid, you know, kind of picking pieces out of um, the holistic management uh, models and the decision-making models and the goal-setting that worked for us on our farm. However, I was um, grateful enough to work with a presenter who actually was able to articulate holistic management in a way that totally clicked for me and was relevant to vegetable farming. And that's Cree Bradley, who's actually now on staff at Land Stewardship Project, but she took some of those concepts and just made them so uh, approachable and really was able to give testimony to the power of those. So through the journey person course, Joan and I have actually fallen back and and have a little more um, structure to some of the holistic management um, goal setting and decision-making that we do use on our farm. That being said, you know, it's still a hybrid of of other things that we've come up with along the way.
0: So I'm, 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 I'm interested to know more about the about the hybridizing that you've done, but tell me a little bit about what Cree said to you about the holistic management model that that clipped with you as a vegetable farmer. I, I'm a huge fan. Uh, I actually met Alan Savory uh, out at Deep Springs College in 1990 and was immediately struck by the power of what of what he was talking about with holistic management. So I've been, uh, I've, and I've gone through the trainings and I've, I've been, um, you know, an off on again, off again, uh, uh, Devo. So the devotee of it, you know, <laughs> that I, I, you know, I, 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 hesitate to say things like practitioner, right. but the, I think, um, I, I would be interested to know cause it, it, it has always felt to me like, like, it took some squeezing to make it work for vegetable farmers. So what did, what did Cree tell you that, that, that uh, really jived with your, with the way that you were seeing the world?
1: Yeah. What, what worked the best for me is one, she was coming from it as a vegetable farmer and as a vegetable farmer who accredited the success of their farm to holistic management. So almost, you know, she was giving this testimonial. um, And I think that passion alone was a big part of it. But what she did is she was really able to take those quality of life goals. So she took the holistic goal and broke it down into three components, which it is. It's a three-part goal. But she was able to articulate them so clearly to us that it really made sense. So the quality of life always made sense to us. And that was more of our hybrid. We were taking these, these things that whether we farmed or we taught school or delivered garbage, you know, what are these things that no matter what we do with our lives, these are the, these are the key things to make us feel happy and, you know, um, successful as, as human beings. That always made sense to Joan and I. And we had a very strong um, quality of life Piece going for us, um, but then that, the, for me, the holistic goal always fizzled out from there because then there was this piece about forms of production and future resource base, and that just came became too lofty for me, and it, it just we stopped with the with the quality of life piece. Um, but Cree was able to come in and really take that forms of production and future resource base and really kind of make it make sense in the whole context of the holistic goal. So you know, she was able to really articulate that, you know, if if having free time to spend with your family is something that's so important to you that you've listed it as a quality of life in that forms of production, even though it sounds like it's farming based, she really was saying, what do you need to commit to your life to make sure that you get that time with your family?
0: Um, what do you actually have to do exactly. to, get, to achieve that quality of life? Exactly.
1: And I think that hearing that was saying, okay, so yeah, so it's, it's great that, you know, I want to have time with my friends and family as, as a quality of life piece. But if I don't have anything in place to make sure that that happens, the farmer is going to take that over and I won't have that time. So what do I need to set aside to make sure that happens? So putting some checks and balances in there was, was just really instrumental to, to again, like I said, kind of taking that goal and actually making it a three-part goal, not just for the quality of life piece.
0: So how, how have you done that on your farm? How, how, how have you, with, you've said that, that quality of life, that family time was important to you. So what kinds of forms of production have you put in place at Prairie Drifter Farm in order to ensure that you and Joan and the kids get the family time that you value?
1: Yeah, that's, you know, and, and we always chalk it up to, well, we can just, we get a bye year until the kids are at least, you know, until our youngest is at least two, we get to just get away with not doing that. But
0: you can pretty but, much, you can just put her on your back and just haul her around just, just like a sack you of potatoes. Know one thing we've
1: done intentionally is, and, and this is a small thing, but it's important to us is we, you know, it, it's, it's a little comical, but um, we have childcare for our two children on farm Monday through Thursday. So, um, that was intentional on our part. You know, we're not sending them to daycare. We're having people come onto the farm. We eat lunch with the kids. Um, we eat snack with the kids. The kids are out in the field with the, with who's ever watching them. Not all the time, but we're, we're constantly seeing them, but we don't have that stress of wanting to play with them and get the farm work done. Cause we know there's someone else wonderful to, to spend time with them, but we've intentionally taken Fridays and called them family, family farm Fridays. So We don't have childcare on Fridays and Joan and I take turns. Um, today was a perfect example um, we take turns, we sit down Thursday night and say who's going to have the kids when, who's going to be farming with the crew when um, when are the kids going to be out with, with us and the crew and that's just been our four year old in particular loves it um, but it's been a really nice way for us to to kind of tie those pieces in together, you know Friday's always a little lighter day on the farm for us especially when the CSA season gets going because we have big delivery on Thursday And so that's been an intentional piece for us um, and then as you know just trying to carve out time on the weekends and it's not usually the full weekend especially in may and june um once july and august roll around we have a little more time for that but carving out time on the weekends where we're intentional about leaving the farm even if that's just going into the library or if that's just going to a park nearby but leaving the farm as a family so that the work is left on the farm and we can spend some of that time together
0: I really like that. I, I like, I, I love that idea of bringing the childcare onto the farm. When we went through an employee crisis, on um, in our third year of farming and, and actually, um, I managed to get everybody on the farm to quit over a period of 10 days. I think I drove 12 employees off the farm because uh, I was such a bad manager and, um, I fixed that. I got better, but you know, it, it took the crisis to get there, but we, we, um, we hired a crew of of Hmong women from Lacrosse, and and the, the the matriarch of the family that we were working with, she she looked around at us with our three young kids and and this farm, and she's like, "Where's your grandma? You guys need a grandma, you know." And I think I kind of like how you've w- even just with that with that on the farm childcare for four days a week, you've kind of institutionalized a grandma. You've got somebody there who's not doing the farm work and is paying attention to the kids. Cause that's, I mean, that's what she was getting at. We needed somebody to be watching the kids so that we didn't have to try to either juggle them or ignore them right. in order to make the farm work. That's right. I, I think that's so, I think it's really, I think that's a really powerful thing that you're doing.
1: And we're also lucky because, two out of those four days is a grandma. So my mom is actually comes down from St. Cloud two days a week to, to be that grandma role. And it's, you know, she makes us lunch. Um, she gets dinner on the table. So, I mean, it's exactly that. It's that having that extra extra person around, is, it's, it's phenomenal.
0: So is that, is that part of why you ended up at, I was I wanted to ask you how you ended up in Litchfield?
1: That's a really good question. It's a long answer. Um, I grew up in St. Cloud, which is 40 miles north of Litchfield. I'd never been to Litchfield except for once. There was a detour on my way to my grandparents. Um, Joan and I struggled, as many beginning farmers do, um, to to locate a farm um, that had soil that we could farm, that was big enough that we could expand our business, that had a livable house, um, that was in some proximity to a market, that was in some proximity to a few things that as a young family we would really like, um, and that that was a struggle for us, so we we actually looked for a farm very heavily for two years um, and when I say very heavily, I mean I think the summer of two thousand and ten we looked at over thirty farms. Um, we had ads in the newspaper, we were working with rural postal carriers looking for abandoned farms. I mean, we were speaking at churches about you know here we are, a young couple want a farm um, and I was also really trying to um, Stay connected to Land Stewardship Project's Western office, which was based in many, in Montevideo, and that's where we were living at the time. Um, and we just really struggled. So, um, through some real good conversations with uh, my supervisor at Land Stewardship Project, she just said, "You know, start looking a little further, and we'll we'll be able to make this this thing work out with with working with Land Stewardship Project." She said, "As long as you don't get too far away." Um, so we expanded our search, um, and. Oh, I, I think we, and we were working with three realtors and we looked at our last farm, it was mid-August of 2010, Joan was pregnant. Um, we were renting land, living in a really shady rental house in Montevideo and just needed a change. But we looked at this last farm on our list and with our realtor and it didn't check out, you know, it was 20 acres of rolling hills and a house that needed to be torn down. and And we were kind of threw our hands up and, and said, well, what's next? And on our way home, our realtor called us on her cell phone. And she said, I just found a place for sale by owner on Craigslist, South of Litchfield. You should go check it out. Um, and sure enough, we drove down this dead end gravel road. There's a tiny sign at the end of the road that said for sale. Um, and you know, that ended up being um, where we ended up purchasing that farm before we bought the farm in Litchfield. Joan was actually working that summer, in addition to running our own farm, me working at LSP, Joan was working two days a week with Laura and Adam at Loon Organics. Um, So she would drive, you know, an hour over to Hutchinson and and work for them two days a week. Um, So when we found this farm in Litchfield, uh, Laura and Adam are only 15 miles from us. And that was key for us is to have some friends in the area. Um, Litchfield also has a co-op Food, natural food co-op on main street. That's been on operation for 30 years. Um, so there's just a couple things about Litchfield that we said, you know what, um, let's, let's give this a go. And then, the, like I said, the proximity to, to St. Cloud where I grew up, again, I would have never guessed I would be, um, living so close to there, but it, it feels good. It feels like the right place for us. Um, and everything is, everything has checked out, um, up until this point. So we're, we're very happy to have landed in Litchfield.
0: That's great. I I really like that story about taking so much time to find the right farm and putting so much effort into that. I think I think that's so important. Uh, to, to I mean if you, I mean especially if you're going to be a vegetable farmer, you know, you can't you can't just make do with anything.
1: That's right. That's right. And I unfortunately as I've worked with a lot of beginning farmers, I've seen enough, not all, but I've seen enough beginning farmers jump the gun and buy a farm um before they were ready, before they knew what type of soil they needed before they knew what type of water they needed before they thought about you know proximity because we get excited you know um, I'm lucky to have Joan um, because I probably would have bought you know ten of the wrong farms in that first year of looking um, but you know we kept we kept very clear on what it was we were looking for but I I would get emotional and excited about you know farms that I would see and um, Joan would be very practical about. Reminding me of what we wanted to do on that farm, um, including, you know, live there. Um, so that really helped uh, to kind of move us forward. And, you know, it was a struggle. I, I, I say I, I think we were very deliberate. However, I, you know, had it happened a little bit sooner, I think it would have lightened the stress load a little bit. Um, however, I work with a lot of beginning farmers now, and it's it's seeming on average, um, at least people who are serious, it's taking them about two years to to find, quote unquote, the right farm.
0: I just don't find that surprising. What, tell me, tell me some of the criteria that you were, you were looking at for a piece of land. I mean, obviously you talked about a couple, you wanted to be close to friends. You needed to be near the places that where you were deriving income from, you needed to be at least close to market. That's right. Tell me some about the actual land that you were looking at.
1: Yeah. So, you know, and this is interesting too, because, you know, even through even going through farm beginnings and even doing all this planning, I, I would say we were still a little naive when we first got started about you know what our production would look at. We, you know, one of one of the beauties of working with Land Stewardship Project is I got to um, host numerous farm tours. I got to um, visit many. I, I, I visited a lot of farms, so I got to see. Um, farms of all kinds, but I was, you know, kept my eye open to the vegetable farms in particular. So I I saw everything from Gardens of Egan and Harmony Valley, you know, down to some of these urban farms that are in the city. So I kind of got to see the gamut. Um, And and Joe and I were a little naive when we first got started thinking, you know, well, we could probably pull something off where it can just be the two of us, you know, operating the farm and, you know, stay under that A hundred CSA share members and make a living, Um, and I still talk to people who think that that's possible, and I haven't met many people who have been able to to do that, especially when kids come into the picture and you're thinking about vacation and you're thinking about retirement. Um, So we wanted to make sure we had enough ground on our farm to scale up to a size that we had seen other farmers um, farming that looked like models that we wanted to to be working with. So we were looking for you know, that eight to 10 really solid tillable ground, preferably more. Um, and with that, what I also found is it all have to be right on your farm, but we were also looking at the neighborhood, you know, is are there other farms in the neighborhood that might open up for some rental rental land in the future? And the farm that we found is on a dead end gravel road and, um, In our neighborhood, there are actual farmers. So um, the conventional row crop farmers in our neighborhood still live on their farms. Um, We have a dairy across the street. We have a small grain farmer up the road. So it wasn't just large rental acreage that, you know, we'd never see the farmer. So that, that led me to believe that, you know, with the ground that we had on this farm, you know, FSA says we have 22 tillable acres on this farm. Um, And I'm guessing if we got paid to grow corn and soybeans, we could find those 22 acres. But um, we bought our farm on the, we looked at this farm on the wettest fall on record and we have a wet farm. So it was actually really nice for us to see where we would not be able to grow vegetables on a wet year. Um, Even with that, we we were challenged this spring with five inches of rain early on, and a couple of the fields that we had planned on farming this year were too wet, so we had to open up some new ground. Um, But we were looking for, you know, at least 10 solid tillable acres. Um, We were looking to make sure that we had adequate water, um, that the water supply was good. We were looking at infrastructure. You know, we knew that, yes, we could take out another loan to put up – a pack shed or whatever that would be. But, you know, if there could be some infrastructure that we could start with, that would take some of our costs down. Um, Joe and I both come from wanting to live in northern Minnesota. So we wanted trees on our farm. Um, We didn't want to be completely surrounded by um, non-organic industrial agriculture. And we were able to find that um, in the farm that we purchased. Um, So that was those are some things as well. Um, and a small livable house, which we found as well, which was, you know, it was move-in ready, um, which was really important to us. One thing we did too is because Laura and Adam were living so close, we had them come over right away and we just said, you know, you know what we want to do. You're doing something similar. They came out, they walked the farm with us. We brought shovels. We we put shovels in the ground all around the farm to just see if, if the soil was going to be able to, you know, at least from a quick check, deliver deliver what we needed. Um, the Web Soil Survey through um, the, the is that, USDA um, is an amazing resource to get soil types um, from the computer so that you can check out what does the soil look like on your farm. So we did that with just about every farm we looked at. Um, so those, those are some of the pieces for sure for us that were important.
0: Nick, we're going to pause here and take a minute to hear from our podcast sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Osborne Seed Company. Osborne Seed is a vegetable, flower, and herb seed distributor serving both conventional and organic growers of all sizes. Unlike most seed companies that pre-package their seed in a minimal selection of packet sizes, Osborne packages their seeds to order, allowing you the flexibility to purchase the exact amount of seed you require. The company has built its business on a foundation of customer service, knowledgeable staff, and high quality products. In business for 33 years, Osborne Employees, farmers with growing experience, a staff that is closely involved in variety trials, and customer and industry feedback to support its ability to excel in customer service. Because new varieties are trialed by the company and with growers, the whole team has the opportunity to experience products in the field, and everyone at the company can assist with growing and varietal questions because they have hands on experience with the seeds Osborne sells. Grower visits, company trials, and breeder trials give valuable information necessary to finalize the varieties to be included in the catalog. Osborne Seed Company, high quality seed and superior customer service. New and existing customers get $5 off the first order of $50 or more when you mention the Farmer to Farmer podcast. OsborneSeed.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. Fertrell got its start because the founder, John Johnson, didn't feel like his chemically fertilized roses were meeting his expectations for fragrance and endurance. Johnson found that by mixing organic vegetable, animal, and mineral compounds, the roses soon obtained maximum performance. When rose growers get behind something, you know it's effective. Since that time, Fertrell has built a reputation for quality and service that's second to none. Each product is built upon years of experience and has been time-tested for maximum results. All of their blends are produced in-house, and the organic fertilizers have been formulated to meet organic standards with a full-season release of vital macro and micronutrients. With experience with all types of producers, from backyard hobbyists to full-scale production facilities, Fertrell has the knowledge and products to help you get the most out of your your crops whether you raise crops and livestock organically conventionally or somewhere in between for trell better naturally for com. all right welcome back everybody so nick you have i mean clearly you you've drawn on a lot of people and a lot of resources to make this farm work i mean you've talked about your friends you've talked about uh you talked about neighbors you've talked about grandma um you certainly talked about about your the farm beginnings program um you mentioned earlier that, that you guys had kind of had this idea that maybe you were going to be able to farm without employees, but that's, right. that's uh, I, f- I find most people aren't, most people don't end up sticking to that. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell me some about, you said you've got about 125 CSA members. How many acres are you farming?
1: Uh, this year we have six acres in vegetable production. Um, and, you know, a roughly a couple acres in, in cover crop, some annual cover crop and some um, perennial-based cover crop that we're still working into. Um, but we have, we have six acres in production this year.
0: When we were talking before the show, Nick, you said that the, that the CSA is about 75% of your production and you have another 25% that's going to uh, other wholesale outlets. Oh, uh, that's right. Okay. So just to kind of get an idea of how those acres are matching up with with output in terms of those CSA shares and and business. But so, I mean, yeah, six acres. I mean, that's not, I mean, two people on six acres of vegetables isn't, isn't particularly realistic. So tell me a little bit about how you made that transition to having employees and and what you've got now in that structure.
1: Yeah. So, um, Last season was our first season with full-time employees. Um, the season before that, we dabbled with with part-time um, part-time help. Um, we've always had work shares on the farm, so we've always done two to six work shares on harvest days. So having you know having um, some work shares come out for the morning of harvest and getting those uh, vegetables harvested and boxes packed and um, into the cooler. Um, Last year was our first year with with full-time employees. Um, So this year we have two full-time employees. And when I say full-time, it's full-time seasonal. Um, So starting end of April, running through end of October, beginning of November. Um, We'd love to to be able to offer full-time year-round employment, um, but currently that's not the way that our farm operates. And and maybe in the future it will be. Um, And I only say that because it would be really great to... um, have some employees return to the farm, so that um, the year we spend training, learning, growing together could then be expanded upon the next year, um, and maybe that will happen um, in the future as well, but currently, we have two full time employees, one part time employee we 've got a call list of um, neighborhood labor that we can call on to you know come when we need to do a major transplant or um, maybe a, a big hand reading of a crop like onions. Um, or we had a full crew out last week when we we, we grow field potatoes. Um, we grow some in a hoop, but mostly in the field. So um, putting up T posts for trellising. We have some people that we can call on on top of that. Um, so, but as far as, you know, a regular basis, there's um, Joan and myself, two full time employees, Astrid and Osiris, and then we have a part time gal, Shelby. Um, and that seems about right for, um, the six acres that we're managing. Um, and I will say our employees keep regular hours. So we're doing, um, eight to five with an hour lunch break. Um, and we're pretty good. We stick to that. I would say 90% of the time we're able to stick to that. Um, and we're not working weekends, or I should say our employees aren't working weekends. And that seems manageable for us as well. Um, and for them, and it seems to, keep the energy and the, the, the work level high for, for our employees. Um, and then, you know, John and I are, are filling in in the evenings and in the on the weekends when necessary. And we still have work shares. So this year we'll actually have um, six work shares that will be spread out throughout the week to, to help out with um, a variety of things around the farm, but mostly mostly harvest and pack.
0: You mentioned when we were talking before the show that, that you're doing – Sort of a, a hybrid model of an, of an incubator farm is that with employees or is that with with somebody else
1: That's a good, so um, what we'd like to get it to is um, with employees uh, so it just happened to be that there was um, a farmhouse for sale a quarter mile down the street from us, and no farmland with it, so the price was really inexpensive it was just it was a, a farmhouse um, and uh, a neighbor of ours who has become a good friend of ours and a, and a really good mentor. He's a 70-year-old farmer. Um, he was willing to, to, to give a long-term lease on the land or on the house um, if, if we wanted that. Um, so Joan and I actually worked with a couple social investors. We worked with three social investors to try to figure out a model so that we could purchase this house. We could set up our employees to live over there and give them the option to do some incubating and the idea was that they would have to put in a little time on our farm first. So we did some research, talked to some other farms. A lot of farms were requiring, you know, a year of employment on the farm with the second year or even the third year, an option to incubate. Um, and we were working very closely with Loon Organics to see if, you know, perhaps some of their employees might be interested in something as well since the house is big. and. Um, but anyway, it, it just, it, the social investors started to fall out um, kind of slowly for a variety of reasons, which I totally understood, and it seemed like the whole thing was going to kind of fall apart. But then we had some really good friends that were vegetable farming in this area a couple of years ago, and then they moved to go pursue other things. And this spring, they kind of got back in touch with us, saying that they were interested in, in coming back and, and getting their farm up and running again. Um, and we we pitched this idea to them about this house and this, this idea with, with an incubator. And, and they took the the bait and they had some family members who were able to help financially um, secure the house. So um, we worked with the, this, the seller of the house, got the house secured for them. Um, and then we worked with our neighbor, the landowner, to get the acreage. And then essentially what we're doing with them is um, we're doing education. So both um, Joan and I here at Prairie Drifter Farm and then Lauren Adam at Loon Organics, um, kind of a combined effort, but we're doing some, some very intentional training with them. Um, we're doing equipment sharing on our farm, so they're borrowing most of our equipment um, with, with trading for labor hours back. Um, and they are in a really good place right now, and they've told us a couple times that you know, they wouldn't have been able to come back and, and get their farm to where it is right now had they not been able to have this option. And we're doing formal education with them too. So they've filled out a, a plan for the season about things that they want to learn and work on. And then we set up formal times, which we do with our employees. So between Loon Organics and Prairie Drifter Farm, every other week we have formal um, educational training in the evening for our employees on topics that they've self-identified. Um, and these this couple that's that's at this other farm nearby that's incubating, they're, they're doing the same thing. So, that's been really exciting. Um, We're trying to build community out here in West central Minnesota and we have to be very intentional about it. And we also have to put a lot of effort into it. So just getting another farm on the landscape has been really exciting. And um, I see this model expanding um, as we move forward with our, with our farm. And it's something that Joe and I are very passionate about and that's helping the next group of folks get started farming. And we have education backgrounds and I, I see I see our goal as farmers to have a successful farm ourselves, but then to also help other people get farms started. In particular, in our neighborhood, so that we can have um, more community here with um, small
0: small growers. I really think it's great. I, it's one of the things I just love about, in particular, the organic farming community. That they, they, you know, you, oh, we're six years in, and 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 boy, now it's time to put a significant amount of our resources towards helping other people get started in this business. And I just, you know, or, or, or whatever. I mean, that's that, that whole, that whole spirit of sharing and, and, uh, and, and being willing to commit time and resources to things that don't necessarily, um, you know, result in more bushels per acre or, or more dollars per, uh, per hour spent, but really do get towards some of those, those quality of life goals, whether you've sat down and, and, and written them out all a holistic management or, or whether it's just something you kind of know that you want to do. And I just think, I mean, I, I think back on, on all of the people that I worked with and for over the years and continued to draw on their expertise on, you know, both for myself and, and then, as, as a, as a conference organizer, being able to call on people to participate. And, and even now as a podcaster to be able to, to call people up and say, Hey, you want to do an interview at at, uh, eight o'clock on Friday night? I'll, I'll, I'll send you a coffee mug. Um, you know, that's, and that's, that's about, you know, that's, that's all we really have to offer. And people are, are almost always willing to carve out time to do that. I think it's such a, it's such a cool part of our community. It makes me proud to be a part of it.
1: I, I agree a hundred percent. And, you know, just the, I think the broader community is so supportive, um, like you're saying, and that's, that's been huge for us. And what, what we have started to notice just in the last couple of years is how needed it is to have a, a, a close geographical community to, to just be able to get together for dinner, go to the park. Um, you know, we're doing equipment sharing with, with our friends who are farming, um, just getting started north of us. And, you know, I see them every day now because they're coming over to borrow piece of equipment and you can have that 10 minute chat and get back to work. And it's just, it's exciting um, to just have um, that type of energy um, around your farm.
0: I, I think Adam and Laura at Loon Organics, they've got kids that are the same age as yours, right?
1: Yeah. Well, Abe and Eli, yep. So they're the, they're the same age and um, we, we, we get them together once a week with the, gram- the grandmas. Get them together once a week to to play, and um, we try to get together, oh, at least every other weekend if if possible, to just get the kids together to play. And um, we've even we've even carved out vacation time in the winter as, as two farming families to to have an opportunity to to get away and have our kids play together.
0: On a similar note, about about giving of knowledge and giving of time, I know that you've been involved in the mentor in various mentorship programs, both I think with the journey person program at LSP with, with helping to organize those, but also as being the recipient of, of mentorships and formal mentorships that have been set up uh, by, uh, by outside organizations.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, So we actually participated in the, in the Moses Midwest organic sustainable education services mentorship, two years. Um, And we actually had two different mentors, um, which um, I think was really good for us. Um, And then, you know, Laura and Adam are our informal mentors. Um, They're a few years ahead of us in farming, and they're very close by um, at Loon Organics, so we have them as mentors. But Greg Reynolds was our first formal mentor um, at Riverbend Farm. Um, He happens to be the 2015 Organic Farmer of the Year. And to this day, you know, that was our first year farming. So that was in 2010 when when Greg was our mentor. So to this day, I still call and email Greg uh, on a fairly regular basis with questions that I have. And he's always um, more than willing and generous with his time to to answer those questions and um, get back to us. And that's been that's been really, really, really great. Um, And, you know, when I'm out cultivating on my farm all super sea, I can only think of Greg Reynolds because he's the one that taught me how to cultivate on his tractor um, and influenced me to purchase the tractor that I did. And, and that's fun. That's fun to just kind of have that connection. Um, and then we also worked with Charlie, Charlie Christie up at La Finca farm in Bruno, Minnesota. Um, and one of the reasons we worked with Charlie was because he had a, a, young family with two kids. He was farming, six to eight acres of, of vegetables and um, was making an income that we were still are, you know, shooting to make. So it was a very intentional um, choice on our part to work with Charlie to, to really hone in on some of those financial pieces, both on the farm, but then also within the family budget to to see how we can, could make that work. And we still keep in touch with Charlie on a regular basis as well.
0: Did you find that having the the structured relationship with the mentorships was was helpful? I mean, you probably could have called up Greg and said, hey, Greg, you know, I got some questions because I know that he's that kind of a guy. He's not going to he's not going to turn you away. I got to protect my markets and I don't want to talk to you young farmers anyways. Yeah, that's not him. But but you chose to go through the, the more structured process.
1: Yeah. And I think part of that was out of the respect to the farmer, such as Greg, um, because you're right, I could have called Greg up and I'm sure he would have answered all of my questions um, very willingly. Um, but I think that for us to be, you know, the mentors get some compensation for their, their work and it's, you know, not as much as, you know, we would all like them to get, but there was a little bit of a, I thought, you know, a, a respect to his time and his energy. So to be able to go through that formal route, I think was really nice for that reason. And then also for the reason of just as that beginning farmer, knowing you kind of have this free pass to call those mentors. Because if it wasn't a formal thing, there would have been that hesitancy every time I went to type an email or pick up the phone. But knowing that there was this formal agreement, you didn't you didn't hesitate at all. You just made those calls, and and I think that 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 piece alone also was, was really helpful. Um, and then there's, you know, there's some structure involved there too with meeting up at at the conference with your mentor and other people in this program to kind of build that community that you and I talked about
0: earlier. So you also mentioned that, that you've worked with the FSA, the farm service agency on getting some financing through them. Is that just through their microloan program?
1: Um, so we have a microloan, um, with, FSA, which is a program I believe they started two years ago. Um, It's one of those programs where um, I think they actually raised the limit. When we applied, it was $35,000 was the max. Um, But it was a very quick turnaround for that loan, which is not common with most FSA loans Um,
0: quick, a quick turnaround in terms of of the approval time.
1: Exactly. So less than a month, um, which is, which is great. So we used an FSA loan to put in an irrigation well on our farm two seasons ago, which, you know, again, the interest rates were great and it just spread that cost out for us. But we also have a farm ownership loan through farm service agencies. So the farm that we bought, um, you know, we bought our farm, when things were bad in the housing market, which was a benefit to us as far as being able to find a place, but it was really hard to get financing at that point. So um, we had limited income. We approached a couple banks and, you know, were, we're denied right away because they weren't lending money as they had been a couple years before that. Um, so actually the only way that we were actually able to purchase our farm was to go through FSA um, and it made our farm affordable. Um, it made our payments, reasonable. And it allowed us to um, get onto this farm. And I don't think it would have happened any other way without, without working with the farm service agency. And they have a couple different loans. We actually have, we we have their um, down payment loan. So that means that we had some money saved up to put down. So FSA um, has a lower rate and we also had to work with a with a third lender. So we have a a couple mortgages on this farm, um, but it's really spread the cost out and our, our monthly payments are, are very reasonable. In fact, my a lot of young beginning farmers who want to get started that I talk to who are renting a room in Minneapolis are, are paying more than we are for the mortgage of our farm.
0: Were there requirements with the FSA loan for having background and training in farming? Was that part of their their consideration process?
1: Yeah, and they've changed actually since we got our loan. Um, I know National National Young Farmers Coalition did some work to, to help switch some of those requirements around. They actually required three years of managerial experience on a farm before you could get a loan from them when we got our loan. And luckily for us, we had that. We had managed um, Earthrise Farm for two seasons, and then we had one season of managing our own farm on rented land, um, but as, as you know, especially in the Midwest, there's, there's not many opportunities for people, young people in particular, to be in a managerial role on a vegetable farm. Um, a lot of the vegetable farms are, are smaller scale, and the farmers are doing most of that managing themselves. Um, so that's always been a little bit tricky. Um, we were in a unique circumstance where we could do that. Um, and they've changed that a little bit. You still need that farm experience, but that can come through employment on a farm um, in a variety of, of ways. But that was one of the requirements um, for our loan. We also um, had to go through some business management training, which was actually beneficial for us also with getting our um, our accounting system set up with QuickBooks and taxes and so forth. So those, those pieces were also a requirement of that loan.
0: When you went through risk management training, was that, was that risk management training put on by FSA?
1: No, you go through farm business management, which is um, in Minnesota anyway. I know it's slightly different in Wisconsin, Um, but in Minnesota it's based out of the local community and technical colleges. So we went through Ridgewater out of Wilmer and you actually enroll at the school. You take credits, but um, you never go to class. You never have to go to campus. The farm business management instructor comes to your kitchen table um, multiple times throughout the season to to sit down with you. But just the way that it's structured here in Minnesota, it funnels through um, those community and technical colleges.
0: Where Where do you recommend that people learn go to learn more about the FSA loans?
1: You know, the best place. To go, I mean, they do have a website, so you you can go there and you can um, find yeah, but some you, information. You, but, uh,
0: <laughs> you and I have both been on government websites, so we know that really you can go there that. and you can find information are two different things.
1: That's right. So, you know? so honestly, the best thing to do is to go into your local county office. Um, and the county offices um, have seen a lot of change in the last couple of years as well. So there's a there 's a in fact, I was at my f s a office yesterday, and there was no loan officers there because they're at they 're covering three different county areas right now. but the best thing is to figure out when there 's going to be a loan officer in your local in your local f s a office and just go in and sit down with them and and chat about that. Another nice thing is oftentimes that some of these conferences, so whether it 's the Minnesota Organic Conference or the Moses Organic Conference um, immigrant, and fi- immigrant and Minority Farming Conference in St. Paul, they'll often be FSA officers who are accustomed to working with um, small-scale vegetable producers at these conferences, and there's, that's a good time to kind of connect one-on-one with them. But just visiting the county office, and we always tell folks, if, if you get resistance, which we did when we went into our first county office, um, and again, that was back in 2008, um, there there are other um, loan offices in other counties who are very, very willing to, to work with uh, vegetable producers.
0: So if you, if you run into resistance in, in your county office, you can, you can go to another county office and still get a loan, even though it's outside of your, well, outside
1: Well there, There's your, some your... caveats. I mean, I would say for your initial visit, you can go anywhere. Um, and, but there is a, there is a system that one can go through if you are having trouble on a county level. Um, to to work with somebody else. However, um, since our experience, I've I've just seen more and more and more willing um, FSA loan officers who are excited to be working with with vegetable producers.
0: I see it's got to be a lot more interesting. I, I would think so. That, it's, it's than loaning somebody money to put in another thousand acres of. Round up ready corn and soybeans. That's right.
1: That's right. It's a little harder for them to 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 grapple with all the numbers, though. Um, but they do a nice job.
0: So Nick, we're going to turn here to the lightning round. Okay. Um, and ask you. Yeah. Yeah. See now, now, this is this is where you mentioned that the, one of your employees is a listener of the podcast. You aren't, so you're not ready for this. But mm-hmm. that's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you'll. This is the fun part. That's right. Okay. All right. So um, we're going to start with a, a, the first question we've got is what's your favorite tool on the farm?
1: Favorite tool. And I was reading your podcast and I knew this was coming and I've been racking my brain the last two days to, to come up with with an answer. And I have three answers, if that's OK. Um, one is our um, our wheel hoe. And we have a. Um, oh, see, now I'm going to bring on the name Oak Valley. That's it. Right. Oak Valley Tools out of California. Um, it, the blue wheel yes, hoe right. with the rubber wheel. Oak Valley. So that's, that's, that's number one. I would have bought that before I bought my cultivating tractor, but I love tractors. So my number one tool on the farm is the 1958 Farmall Super C. Um, That's very versatile for us on the farm. And it was as a tractor, my first word as a child was tractor. So to, to be able to have, purchased a tractor. <laughs> um, my first tractor. You,
0: you've been on this, you've been on this farming path for a long yeah, time. I think
1: so. So um, that's Farm All Super And then, you know, we moved to using electric vehicles on our farm to, to harvest, to feed, to do just about anything. So really, we have a golf cart that we, you know, modified and put a big wooden plywood bed on the back. And then we have this electric, it looks like a golf cart, but it's called a carry It's like a little pickup bed that carries 1,500 pounds. And anybody, I mean, anybody can drive these things. They don't go fast. They're safe. They're quiet. They're electric. Our hope is to solarize the farm and solarize, add solar to the farm in the next couple of years. So to be thinking about, generating solar energy to, to charge these vehicles is something we're super excited about.
0: Tell us a little bit more about the Super C for folks that, that aren't as in love with tractors or as as fully immersed in that. What is what what is a Super C? What makes that special?
1: Yeah, so the Farmall Super C, again, this is a, a very strong Greg Reynolds influence. Um, I believe he has two of them. Um, it is a old tractor from the fifties and uh, late fifties, but it's got um, it's a cultivating tractor. So it is set up with belly mounted. So underneath, you know, in between the wheels um, with a view for the driver and it's got hydraulics that operate um, the cultivators. So I'm, I'm operating cultivators, um, both belly mounted and then in the rear. So um, it's a great tractor to drive. It's so quiet. Um, I mean, I wear my protection when i'm driving it but you really don't need to you can talk to somebody um while while standing next to the tractor and just fun to drive it's got a big spring in the back of the seat so when you hit a bump you you bounce quite a bit which is always enjoyable um just just (laughs) all around a a very very great tractor to have around
0: it's the spring in the back of the seat you know it's the it's the little things right it
1: is i mean you go over a bump and he kind of bounced for a little while. Um, and I had a friend of mine who was a larger gentleman. Um, he got on that thing, and I'd, I'd never seen that spring bottom out before, but he was able to do that, and um, that, was,
0: that was fun to see also. Yeah, you're kind of a small, wiry guy, so, yeah, you probably, so don't, you don't, it probably doesn't get happen to you. you no,
1: know, I have to go over some pretty big bumps to get that thing to bounce.
0: All right. So what's your, uh, what's your favorite crop to grow? My favorite crop to
1: grow, you know, I used to say celeriac. Seleriac's um, my favorite crop to harvest. However, for whatever reason, it just it sat in our cooler all winter long and I said I was going to eat it every day and I just never did. Um, so, I mean, we ate some of it, but I I thought for sure that um, maybe I need to do that this winter. I need to eat more celeriac this coming winter. It's, it's by far my favorite crop to harvest. One, because it's late fall, so it's cooler. Um, it seems to be one of those things that we bring a lot in. And there's just something about the the way you harvest it by kind of, you know, pulling it out, cutting it, trimming up those, those root hairs. And then we use a pressure washer in our pack shed and to just see those things shine, um, after, after coming out of the, out of the field is, is fun. So that's my favorite crop to, to harvest and, and, and wash. Um, as far as growing, we love to go crabs mostly just because we can, you know, you can pull them out and eat them, eat them right away. Um, and, I never used to like kale and, you know, I know it's all the rage. And in fact, I saw a grocery bag the other day from a co-op and it said collards are the new kale. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> we still grow kale on our farm. Um, but you know, the versatility of that thing, that vegetable, um, both just with the longevity, the season, the, how long it lasted the season, um, and Mike Bollinger from River Root Farm had a video of some folks harvesting kale in I'm assuming California. And I've never seen anybody harvest kale that fast. So now I've got some, some homework to do this season. Um, but I love I love we're eating kale right now every day and, and I'm I'm back in love with kale.
0: All right. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be?
1: Grow raspberries. I have this dream to, you know, to completely perennialize the farm with raspberries. Um, and I still think I could use tractors. So that would be the one thing I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to get so perennial that I couldn't drive a tractor on my farm. Um, but <laughs> I have, I have these visions of both visiting my grandparents' farm as a child and eating as many raspberries as I could. And then visiting my other grandmother who lived out on a lake and going and picking wild raspberries. Um, but I've never been to a large-scale raspberry farm, so I have no idea what that looks like. But um, when I dream about going back and studying over, I have these visions of, you know, raspberries all around me. Um, but That's not going to happen in this lifetime. But I am planting, you know, plenty for me to eat here on the farm.
0: Nick, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for making time to do this.
1: Well, I appreciate it, Chris. I appreciate the invitation, and this has been a lot of fun.
0: Keep up the good work, Nick. Thank you. You as well, Chris. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 19 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmer to dot com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Olson. That's O-L-S-O-N. And what we do with those notes, and I think the the, the reason I always emphasize this at the end of the show is that We have links to the resources and other things that Nick has mentioned. So, you know, if you're driving or if you're out on the tractor or working in the greenhouse and can't stop to write something down that you were interested in in following up on, we try to make certain that we've got a list of the things that Nick mentioned so that you can get a mental jog and link into those resources yourself. If you like what you hear here on the podcast, I'd encourage you to think about signing up for my newsletter, which is called The Flying Rutabaga, at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or at purplepitchfork.com. We put it out every week, getting a lot of great feedback about it lately. I think it's something that you would find to be a valuable resource. Thank you to everyone who has taken the time to give us a rating or a review. The more fresh comments we get on iTunes, the higher it drives the show and the ratings. For you Android folks, iTunes is still very dominant in terms of the, the amount of downloads that we get as the source, so that's really our, our focus on where we want those comments to be, and it really does make a difference in how many people the show reaches. On a personal note, I just want to say a little about the recording setup for this episode, which we Nick and I recorded at 8.15 on a Friday night. My partner and I bought a house in Madison, Wisconsin about two weeks ago. We're moving in two weeks. I'm on my way back to my house in Decorah, Iowa from working on a farm in Northern Illinois all week, and I stopped in the empty house in Madison to spend the night and record the episode of course, the house is empty, so the echoes are just horrible in here. I had to set up the studio in the hall closet to cut down on the echo. I'll try to get a picture up on Facebook if you're interested. It's one of those farmer things, right? You just got to make do with what you got. And I've always been grateful to have that experience in my background as I as I go through things. You know, we used to uh, we used to have jokes on on my farm about dumb farmer tricks, and I, I'm not I'm not always proud of all the very unsafe and, and rather stupid ways that we went about getting things done. But you do kind of work to get things done. And I really like that about farmers. I think it's a really cool thing. So, all right, everybody, have a great week. It's June. If you're in the north at all, you got to be out there killing weeds just as much as you possibly can. And I hope you're having a good time doing it. Run that cultivator straight. Make sure you're filling in those inner row spaces with just the right amount of soil so that you can bury those little baby weeds. You want to get them before the before you can even see them. That's really the right time to be out there getting those weeds under control. Hope you have good luck. Keep that tractor running.